welcome to episode 41 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most beautiful host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We're just a handful of episodes into season four, and I've got two more for you. Episode five, Two Doves and Mr. Heron, and episode six, And I Want Some Candy and a Gun That Shoots. I'm going to go ahead and put mild trigger warnings for both episodes. In Two Doves and Mr. Heron, there is some light homophobia, which I will discuss, as well as some mild 70s homophobic insults. And for, and I want some candy and a gun that shoots, it is a sniper situation that 5 is dealing with, so that could have some mass shooting vibes. And there also will be a discussion of mental illness. So please gird your loins accordingly. I provide trigger warnings to help inform people of the content they are about to consume. That is the purpose of trigger warnings. I would much rather have people come back to an episode when they're in the proper mindset to listen to it rather than ambush them and them never listen to me again. There are plenty of other really good reasons to never listen to me again. So with all that said, let's go to Hawaii. on this poor unfortunate man you look like somebody with a big heart sir i'm not no now 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 now, you're probably saying to yourself this hippie freak is demeaning himself in society at large by begging in the streets but it's a fact that pleading for alms is an ancient and honorable profession that goes back to the biblical times you know is that a fact like it's cool to give man better than to receive look to pity distress is human to relieve it is godlike you dig yeah how about it some uh, loose change some old worn out torn rotten dollar bills what do you say well i don't have any worn torn dirty dollar bills but out of five do you wow thank you that's beautiful you know i've got a lot more where that came from lots more yeah, well, this is fine. Thank you very much, sir. Where are you going? I've, I've got a split. Well, why don't you just talk to me for a minute? I'm, hey, knock it off. I'm not going to hurt you. Just just cool it. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Just let go of me. Shh. I'm not going to hurt you. Would you let go of Season 4, Episode 5, Two Doves and Mr. Heron. Air date October 12th, 1971. Directed by Charles S. Dubin. This is his fourth of 24 episodes. And written by Anthony Lawrence. This is his seventh of nine episodes. Ryan Moore is charming a couple of older women in the park out of some cash with his charming jester act when his girlfriend Cleo arrives. Cleo is in awe of his talents, but Ryan assures her that she can do it just as well, sending her to work on an older gentleman who might be charmed. The man's gruff dismissal throws Cleo off and she blows it. However, Ryan swoops in to salvage the attempt, following and charming the man to a secluded spot in the park. There, the man gives him some money and then puts some moves on Ryan, freaking him out. Cleo, who's followed the two of them, witnesses the scene and tries to intervene. Ryan hits the man on the head, knocking him down and out. Right before they bolt, Ryan makes the fateful decision to steal the man's wallet. 
At 5-0 headquarters, Danny is on the phone with his old landlady on the mainland, Mrs. Michaels, about her missing daughter when Jitty tells him that Steve wants him. In Steve's office, Che Fong and Kono are briefing Steve on cases. Danny asks for permission to work on the missing person's case, and Steve gives him the go-ahead and his full support. At the hospital, Mr. Heron is obviously distressed at the loss of his wallet. Chin Ho talks to him, but he claims he didn't see who mugged him. We know that's a lie because it's the same man that Ryan clubbed in the park. When Mr. Heron asks why the state police would be involved, Chin informs him that there have been a rash of muggings. Mr. Heron insists that there was nothing of value in the wallet and that they should just forget it. Chin doesn't agree, but leaves Mr. Heron to think about it. As soon as Chin is gone, Mr. Heron just leaves. While Danny pleads with Dave and missing persons to help him find Mrs. Michael's missing daughter, who turns out to be Cleo, Chin Ho reports Mr. Heron's odd behavior to Steve, which sets off his McGarrett senses. His suspicions are justified when it's discovered that Heron has bailed from the hospital. Steve orders a forensics team to comb for clues on their missing mugging victim. Ryan justifies his act of violence and theft to Cleo as they drive to the airport. It seems Mr. Heron had a locker key in his wallet, and Ryan is curious as to the contents. He finds a briefcase, which he and Cleo take. Just after they leave, Heron arrives with a spare key to find the locker empty. At a candle shop that Ryan and Cleo hang out at, Ryan opens the briefcase to find it loaded with cash. He believes this to be a windfall. It's clear the guy was a thief, so he won't go to the cops. The money is theirs to keep. But Cleo disagrees. Ryan attempts to justify it, but Cleo calls out his hypocrisy. Realizing Cleo isn't buying into his spiel, Ryan pulls the love trump card and wins her back to his side. Meanwhile, Che Fong finds Prince in the hospital room, which lead 5-0 to find out that Mr. Heron is an embezzler. They get the word out. While the cops look for Heron, Heron looks for Ryan and Cleo. Danny is also looking for Cleo. It's one big game of hide-and-seek. The only one who gets found, though, is a friend of Ryan and Cleo's. She's gone to the candle shop to get high, and Heron finds her apparently passed out on the bed. It's only when she doesn't wake up, when he starts to rough her up, that he realizes she's dead, most likely an OD. In a panic to get rid of evidence, Heron knocks over a candle and lets the place burn. 5 is still looking for Heron, Heron is still looking for Ryan and Cleo, and Ryan and Cleo are looking for their escape from the islands. Who will find what they're looking for first? Here's the thing about this episode. Ryan is a very charming man. And throughout the episode, he uses that charm not only to get what he wants as a panhandler, but also as a thief and also to keep Cleo by his side. As we go through the episode, you can see why Cleo would be with him at first, because he is a very charming, fun, apparently deep and spiritual person. But as we get through the episode after he steals the money, it's quite apparent that all of that is very self-serving. I've always said that when it comes to charm, when people say that someone is charming, I think yes, but so are serial killers. And Ryan has that vibe. He's not necessarily a serial killer, but he has that vibe of using charm for his own means. And why it's so effective, I think, why you kind of begrudgingly like Ryan, even after he's proven himself to be something of a piece of shit, is because it is a young John Ritter portraying this character. And John Ritter, obviously a very talented man, he could also qualify as charming, but his charm has sincerity behind it. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so easy to become so quickly enamored with Ryan at the very beginning, because it's John Ritter. 
So when he's wooing these two older women into giving him money, he is just laying it on thick. Anybody else, you'd probably be put off by it because it is so over the top. But John Ritter has a way of selling it with this just grandiose performance kind of vibe that, of course, you would give him money. He is performing. He's earning it. And he seems like a very nice boy. And you kind of think that all the way through. Even when he's cornered by Heron and ends up taking advantage of him, knocking him down and stealing his wallet. The way that scene is kind of set up is that, well, he's getting what's coming to him. So here is what I mean by the trigger warning of the homophobia. You do not anticipate after Heron turns down Cleo that when Ryan starts working on him that he will be any more receptive, except he is. He warms up to Ryan a little more and you think it's because Cleo is a little inept and not very confident in her skills as a panhandler and basically a mild con artist. Ryan, of course, has complete confidence in himself. You think it's his charm working until they get around by some trees and some bushes where they're kind of out of sight of everybody else in the park. And Heron offers him $5 and he has, he says, I have more money than that. And he kind of starts putting the moves like he's like touching Ryan's face and saying, I just want to be nice to you. Why are you upset? You can understand Ryan being upset by that. Even if this weren't a obviously closeted gay man who thinks Ryan's good for a cruise, in that kind of a situation, if it was a man doing that to a woman, you would be upset by it. And if you were, if it was a woman doing that to a man, you'd still be upset by it because it's very clear that Brian wants nothing to do with these advances. And Heron is not taking no for an answer. So there is some underlying, I think, homophobia in the writing of the character portraying a closet homosexual as a deviant, as a potential predator. The thing is, is that it possibly wouldn't have been had there been more balanced representation of queer characters on television at the time there weren't they were typically particularly men were portrayed as deviants so this is kind of catering to that a little bit so it's kind of got a little bit of a homophobic aura around it Vic Morrow's portrayal of Heron and the character and him being a closeted gay man is actually quite good from his point of view obviously you have to live in the closet because it is the 1970s and he's older. So it's early 1970s. We're just getting into some revolutions. I mean, we had Stonewall just a few years prior to this. It's still the early days. And Heron being older and from an older generation, he's obviously not going to be as comfortable with that. And these clandestine park encounters are not uncommon. That's how you had to operate. Vic Morrow plays it quite well. He does not really portray it, the sexuality aspect as being deviant. Just his behavior of being insistent is what's really off-putting. And it's also of note that the fact that it is later revealed that he is an embezzler, there's nothing about his queerness that makes him steal. So this character could have been completely straight and still embezzled, which is a fine point. It's just that it seems like the homosexuality is to justify Ryan cracking his skull and stealing his wallet. And you kind of understand it because, yes, if a man came on to me that aggressively in the park and was not taking no for an answer, I would absolutely crack him in the skull and probably would steal his wallet. I'm not a good person. I would probably take the cash out of it and ditch the wallet or mail it to the police and say this guy is a predator. You kind of understand where Ryan is coming from when he does that. The assault part is justified because Heron goes after Cleo when Cleo tries to intervene. You get that. But you get the taking of the wallet, too, is because Ryan's a panhandler. This guy kind of had it coming. This is for my trouble. 
The other trigger warning for the homophobia bit has to do with how Ryan refers to Heron. They're very mild insults compared to some of the other insults that could have been used. They're very 1970s appropriate. At one point, he calls him a closet queen, which doesn't seem too bad, but it's obviously with a malicious intent. He also refers to him as a lilac man. I think most of the younger listeners, viewers of today probably wouldn't get what that means. But back in the day, yeah, uh, lilac was code for gay. And if you were a lilac man, part of the lilac gang, you were a gay man. So yes, Ryan is a bit homophobic, which is completely not out of pocket for 1971. But it seems almost to the extent that his homophobic insults is purely because this guy came on to him and didn't respect no means no, rather than he just hates all queer people. That's my interpretation of the usage. I realize I've gone on a little bit about this, but you know what? As a queer person, I'm going to point out what matters to me. And given the dearth of queer representation in the 1970s on television, yeah, I'm going to point this out and I'm going to discuss it to death. Let's move on. So Ryan's decision has set this whole case in motion. He's stolen Heron's wallet. He's interested in what's in the airport locker when he finds the key in the wallet. And he takes the briefcase. Now, Cleo is uncomfortable with this. She's uncomfortable with the violence to a certain extent, but kind of understands why he did it. He's, she's uncomfortable with him taking the wallet and says, you have to take everything, don't you? Which is a bit of a foreshadowing comment when we get to the end. But she goes along for the ride. He's able to justify everything to her, quoting Buddha. If a man speaks or acts with pure thought, happiness follows him like a shadow and never leaves him. Now that creep just paid for inflicting himself on me. You're not satisfied with just taking his wallet. You've got to take everything you can get. Cleo, my love, you simply must get over these middle-class hang-ups. There probably isn't anything in the locker anyway. Why would he keep his key in his wallet if there wasn't? I am bigger than anything that can happen to me. All these things like sorrow, misfortune, suffering are outside my door. I am in the house and I have the key. Shh. He's probably a salesman. And there's probably something in his locker useful like baby bottles or brassiers. Oh. Huh? So they steal this briefcase. Heron goes looking for this briefcase after he gets out of the hospital. Now, Chin Ho has interviewed him while he was in the hospital, and we know he's a lying liar who lies because he says he didn't see who hit him, and we know he knows exactly who that is. So it's obvious that we're going to anticipate that he's going to go looking for Ryan and Cleo because he knows that they're the ones who've taken the briefcase from him. What's interesting is that on a parallel track, we have Danny looking for the missing daughter of his former landlady. When he was at Berkeley, she was the house lady. Treated him very well, and he's very fond of her. So, of course, he, he says he'll look into it, and he goes to Steve and asks Steve if he can investigate this missing person. And Steve is fully on board, says, whatever support you need, you got it. So on that parallel track, we have Danny looking for Cleo. The, the tracks eventually converge because we have Heron who's behaving suspiciously and then he goes missing from the hospital. So they get his fingerprints from the hospital room and discover that he is an embezzler. He embezzled a quarter of a million dollars from the employee insurance fund at some business that I can't remember right now and didn't write down. 
These parallel tracks kind of converge when Five O realizes that Cleo is tangled up in this mess because she's associated with Brian and we know that Heron is going after whoever took his briefcase. As I said in the summary, it is a great big game of hide and seek. Everybody is looking for everybody and we have a few near misses. Heron just misses Ryan and Cleo at the airport. And then we see when Ryan opens the briefcase and sees all of that money and declares it a windfall and he praises Allah. And it starts off another fight with Cleo because she's really uncomfortable about taking this money. Can't keep it, Ryan. Why not? If he stole it, he isn't going to run to the fuzz. All he can do is hunt around the islands for us, but we won't be here. We will be in Pakistan or Morocco, or Kathmandu. Ryan, it just isn't right. What would you do, give it back to him? But this is stolen bread, Cleo. Probably from some corporation that made it bleeding the public. The insurance will cover it. Nobody's going to get hurt. It's just rationalizing. I mean, it's a principle. Uh, come on, Cleo. No middle-class morality. Not now. I dig you, and you dig me. And that's how it is. That's all it is. Don't you see what bread like this can do for us? We can taste some of that sweet life for a change. You said material things didn't matter. You said all you needed in life was food, a roof over your head, and me to love. That's right. That's all I need to be happy. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other things out there to appreciate. It's one thing to break your hump, slaving to be a consumer in this plastic establishment. But it's something else to have the whole world yours just for the taking. Come on, baby. Let us split. No. Ryan, I can't. Leo, do you love me or don't you? As I said, he has a justification for everything. And of course wins her back by playing the love trump card. Don't you love me? And you can see that Cleo is, even though she does think she loves Ryan, she's still very troubled about this. But love makes you do stupid things. When Heron shows up at the candle shop, which it's a wonderful candle shop. People make candles there. There's a bed there for you to nap on. I wish my workplace had a napping bed. But anyway, when Heron shows up, it's after dark. He goes into the candle shop. It's dim in there. There's only candlelight. Fitting. And there's a girl passed out on the bed. And at first glance... You think it's Cleo, at least I did, because that's how close I was paying attention and how much white women look alike to me. He goes over and shakes her, tries to get her to wake up, shakes her to, to wake her up, drags her out of bed, stands her up, shakes her and slaps her and she collapses and he realizes that she's dead. Now, obviously, he did not hit her that hard and she didn't hit her head on the way down, but he finds a an empty syringe and it's after this after we get a good look at her that you realize it's not cleo but when they first arrive at the candle shop there is a girl sitting outside of the candle shop making a candle that's who that is i think her name's barb so heron panics 
And it, it's a great scene, too, because he he's intent on getting his money back. And he thinks that the girl that he has found is Cleo. And he's roughing her up and saying, wake up. Where's your boyfriend? Where's my money? I want my money back. And obviously, it's not Cleo. She doesn't wake up. But the aggression that he has at the outset that melts from the realization that uh, it kind of melts from this rage to, oh, my God, she's dead. And he kind of panics and he checks her multiple times. Like he, he checks her pulse. He checks her breathing. He gets a mirror, checks to see if she's breathing, realizes she's not. And he panics and he ends up throwing a candle and setting the place on fire. At this point, Danny has realized that Cleo hangs out at this candle shop, but the candle shop burnt down and there was a body found inside. So he is pestering Doc Bergman about the autopsy. He wants to know if it's Cleo or not. He needs to know. And Doc is kind of fed up with him. Danny, you again. I told you this is going to take a little time. I know, Doc, but she might be the girl I'm looking for. Look, it's important to me. If she's the girl who burned to death, I want to know about it. Well, if you keep interrupting, I won't get any lunch and you won't get any information. And he gets his revenge later by dragging out the ID to Danny. And I think that's justified because Danny was being a bit of a pill. I understand it was important to him, but he was being a bit of a pill. But it turns out that the girl was not Cleo, it was Barb, and that she did not die from the fire, she died of an overdose. So that means Cleo and Ryan are still out there, Heron's still out there, and they still have to find everybody. Well, Heron goes looking and he just goes asking around because Ryan wears a top hat and kind of a old school, like, I don't know, like a marching band jacket. And so he kind of stands out a little bit. That's how Heron was able to track him down to the candle shop. After the candle shop, he goes to like a bar and asks the bartender about him. And the bartender claims to know nothing but a girl at the bar who turns out to be Barb's friend overhears it because Heron says that he's looking for this boy because of his mother. His mother's ill. And you see Heron leave after the bartender gives him information and then you see the girl follow him. We later catch up with this girl again because Danny had earlier gone to a youth hangout place that's run by a chaplain. And he said he would ask around and he put up Cleo's picture. And he gets in touch with Danny and says, hey, this girl knows something about her. And that's when they find out that Cleo and Ryan are making a break for it. They're going to leave the islands because they know that Heron will come after him. They knew that as soon as they stole the money. All they have to do is outrun him because he's not going to go to the police. And the girl tells Danny that she told this guy the same thing. So they know that Heron knows. They know they have to get to the airport and find Ryan and Cleo before Heron does. Well, they don't. They get to the airport eventually, but Heron beats them there. And he seizes on an opportunity because Ryan and Cleo once again have a disagreement. Cleo can't go through with it. She has what is Ryan called the middle class morals. But for her, it just doesn't sit right in her gut. She cannot take this money that doesn't belong to her and go off to Shanghai or Hong Kong or wherever. And she had pointed that out to Ryan earlier. And she does again that he's the one who told her that all they need is a roof over their head and food, just the basics. But here is Ryan with his with dollar signs in his eyes about to live the high life. And once again, he kind of charms her, works on her, and he has to go do something. And then he sends her towards the gate. And that's when Heron grabs her and pages Ryan because this is the old school days. He sets up a page for Ryan to take a phone call. And Ryan takes the phone call. And Heron basically says, you have 20 minutes to bring the money to this location at the airport. It's like an old hangar. 
or something like that, but basically nobody will be around. You have 20 minutes or the girl dies. Now, we know how charming Ryan is, but it turns out that Ryan's charm kind of fails in the face of an actual challenge. If Ryan's going to do the right thing, someone's going to have to make him. You know what's absolutely the right thing? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Edward Heron was played by Vic Morrow. He was Sergeant Saunders on Combat and Captain Eugene Nathan on Bad Cats. He also turned up in episodes of Bonanza, The Untouchables, The Immortal, Dan August, Mannix, Ironside, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Streets of San Francisco, Charlie's Angels, Magnum P.I., and Fantasy Island. He appeared in the movies Blackboard Jungle, Hell's Five Hours, God's Little Acre, Cimarron, Posse from Hell, Portrait of a Mobster, Target, Harry, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Take, Wanted, Babysitter, The Bad News Bears, The Last Shark, and Twilight Zone the movie. And he was in the TV movies, Curse of the Black Widow, The Hostage Heart, The Night That Panicked America, The 1973 Tom Sawyer, The Weekend Nun, how is that not a porno? The Glass House, River of Mystery, and Travis Logan, DA. And he appeared in the miniseries, The Last Convertible, Captains and Kings, and The Seekers. As I said, Ryan Moore was played by John Ritter. This is his first of two episodes. He's probably best known as Jack Tripper on Three's Company and Three's a Crowd. But he was also Reverend Matthew Fordwick on The Waltons. Detective Harry Hooperman on Hooperman. He was the voice of Inspector Gill on Fish Police. John Hartman on Hearts of Fire. The voice of Clifford on Clifford the Big Red Dog and Paul Hennessy on Eight Simple Rules. He also appeared in episodes of Dan August, Medical Center, MASH, Kojak, Mannix, Barnaby Jones, The Streets of San Francisco, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Rookies, Starsky and Hutch, Rhoda, Phyllis, The Muppet Babies, The Larry Sanders Show, Dave's World, News Radio, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Ally McBeal, Touched by an Angel, Tales from the Crypt, Law and Order SVU, and King of the Hill. He appeared in the movies Bad Santa, Man of the Year, Panic, Bride of Chucky, Hacks, Nowhere, Sling Blade, North, Stay Tuned, Noises Off, Problem Child 1 and 2, Real Men, Breakfast in Bed, The Stone Killer, and The Barefoot Executive. He appeared in the TV movies The Night That Panicked America with Vic Morrow, The Comeback Kid, In Love with an Older Woman, Love Thy Neighbor, Unnatural Causes, Tricks of the Trade, My Brother's Wife, The Colony, Chance of a Lifetime, and Dead Husbands. And he was in the miniseries, It. Cleo Michaels was played by Diane Hull. She appeared in episodes of Canon, All in the Family, Search, Medical Center, Highway to Heaven, and The Wonder Years. She appeared in the movies The New Adventures of Pippi Lomstocking, Christmas Evil, The Fifth Floor, Aloha Bobby and Rose, Man on a Swing, Girls on the Road, and The Arrangement. And she appeared in the TV movies Haywire and Murder 101. Brenda, I kept calling her Barbara for some reason, sorry about that, was played by Carrie Sherman. This is her first of three episodes. She was Amy Perkins Wallace on Santa Barbara. She also appeared in episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, Barnaby Jones, Lou Grant, Wonder Woman, and Murder, She Wrote. She appeared in the movies The Perfect Match, Eyes of Fire, 48 Hours, 1941, and Satan's Cheerleaders. And she appeared in the TV movies Sunrise, A Miracle of Love, Alone at Last, and Best Kept Secrets. 
Father K was played by Robert Widdens. This is his first of 10 episodes. He was also in episodes of Magnum P.I. and Mama's Family, and he appeared in the TV movie Death Moon. Sergeant Caps was played by Norman Reyes. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in the episode Kiss the Queen. Cap's secretary was played by Camille Yamamoto. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in the second shot. Trinity was played by Brooks Almy. This is their second of four episodes. We saw them in To Kill or Be Killed. And in an uncredited role, the bartender was played by Melvin Cobb. This is his first of two episodes, and these are his only credits. Trinity, the girl that Dano talks to at the youth center, was played by Brooks Almy. This is her second of four episodes. We also saw her in To Kill or Be Killed. And that is Two Doves and Mr. Heron. I quite like this episode just because there is an interesting amalgamation of characters that we have going on here. What with Ryan, the charming thief, and Cleo, these hard-eyed runaway, and Mr. Heron, the closeted thief, in more ways than one. It's interesting to see how 5 works this case, and how the case comes together, how those parallel tracks kind of find a way to intersect. And I think the ending's really good, because, like I said, if Ryan's going to do the right thing, someone's going to have to force him, and of course 5 does. But the way that all comes together is really great, and it's kind of unexpected. There is quite a bit of tension that happens with that ending. So I I think it's a very satisfying conclusion to the episode, and I think the episode is quite entertaining. You should give it a watch. That's a lot of fish and poi, brother. What have we got, Duke? Sniper, haven't had time to do anything about him. Two of our boys are down, gotta get him first. Get him out now. Now, better get a chopper in here. We're gonna need some eyes. Use all the cover you can. If he opens up on you, freeze. We'll add our uncovering fire and try to pin him down so you can move again. Cover them. Episode 6, And I Want Some Candy and a Gun That Shoots. Air date October 19th, 1971. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 13th of 16 episodes. And written by John D.F. Black. This is his 6th of 10 episodes. A guy is in a sportsman store buying a gun. He fills out all of the paperwork and signs it George C. Patton. That bodes well. He then takes his new toy in a bag and hikes up to a hillside bunker overlooking a busy road. He's got his gun, a thermos, ammo, and a radio. He gets himself all set up, loads his rifle, and strolls to an ideal spot nearby with a breathtaking view and takes a shot at a car. When a couple of cops show up to help the now-stranded motorist, our shooter takes a shot at them, too. HPD and 5 are on the scene to rescue the wounded officers. While the other officers lay down a suppressing cover fire, two cops in armor drag the wounded officers to their disabled car and get them out of there while our shooter looks on, amused. As the car rolls the officers to safety, our shooter takes out another one of the tires. HPD opens up on him again, this time nearly hitting him. Out of the line of fire, it's determined one of the officers is dead, but the other is transported to the hospital, wounded but alive. Steve attempts to talk to the shooter via bullhorn, asking him to come down, but the shooter just turns up his radio and fires off a shot in response. Everyone takes that as a no. 
Meanwhile, Danny and a chopper scopes out the situation from the air. He calls in a nearby apparently abandoned car's plates and then checks out the shooter's setup from a safe distance. Dano thinks he can see the shooter, but the shooter can definitely see him taking a couple shots at him. While Danny continues his aerial reconnaissance, Steve calls in the disabled car's plates for Chin Ho to investigate. He also wants updates on the wounded officer and he needs Kono to set up a command post. Fivo and HPD are also joined by Paul, a cop who cut his vacation short when he heard his buddies were in trouble. Steve is hesitant to have him helping. Dano reports that there's no way they can approach the shooter's position and close the net tight enough to keep him from slipping through. He'll definitely be able to escape come nightfall. They've got three hours to talk the guy down. Jin's investigative work into the abandoned car leads us to the identity of our shooter, William T. Shader, a.k.a. William T. Shim. We call him Bill. Jin talks to his apartment manager and searches his apartment. The apartment manager says that Bill's a nice guy, a loner with a lot of shooting trophies, and a picture of a beautiful older woman. Jin Ho finds a drawer full of guns. Danny and Dispatch fill Steve in on Bill. He served in the military, was busted for sniping, and did some time in a mental hospital. He was released six months prior. They also find info on his wife. Steve tries to strategize on getting Bill out, but it looks pretty hopeless. The light Bill's psychiatrist sheds on the matter doesn't help. Bill had a sniping incident in the military that earned him a discharge. He then came home and shot out the windows of a woman's dormitory. Until now, there's been no fatalities. The doc says the chances of talking Bill down aren't great. He's in it to win it. Duke has his best marksman in place, but Paul is tired of standing around waiting to get the guy who took out his friends. He takes matters into his own hands with disastrous consequences. So, viewing this episode as someone who lives in a country in which mass shootings are commonplace, this episode is rather interesting. The opening scene is a huge punch into the face of anyone who believes that their right to bear arms should not be infringed upon. Because this man, who we later find out is Bill, goes into a sportsman's store to buy a rifle. Not only does he get the rifle, he also gets the scope and 500 rounds of ammunition. Those are free because he bought the rifle. That is just an amazing deal right there. The shop clerk asks him to fill out some paperwork. He says it's just bureaucratic red tape. And Bill says, I suppose you need an ID. And he goes, are you over 21? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, no, we don't need to see your ID. So this man was able to procure a rifle, a scope, and 500 rounds of ammunition without an ID he filled out paperwork that the guy only glanced at and he signed it George C. Patton. And the best part is, is that the clerk was so not paying attention. He literally only looked at that name to see that it had been signed and referred to him as Mr. Patton. It is maddening to witness. It is a maddening, maddening scene to watch. I don't know how effective it would have been in 1971. It probably would have been horrific that this person was able to acquire this gun so easily. It is more maddening now living in the climate that we're currently living in in 2022. There are people who are advocating to go back to that sort of ease of acquiring firearms. But he's able to acquire his weaponry and he takes his car out and he goes up to this bunker. I think they said it was on Diamond Head. And he goes up to this bunker and he sets up shop you know he's up to no good. There is no way this is man who bought this rifle and immediately goes to a bunker is up to anything on the up and up. 
he is in no way a legal firearms owner. He sets up and he takes out the tires of this car. He shoots out one of the front ones first and then he shoots out the back tire and the lady pulls over to the side of the road. And she gets out and flags down a couple of policemen who happen to be coming by. And they pull over and they're investigating. And that is when Bill takes a shot at the officers. He shoots them both. He does not shoot the woman. Mad props to that woman because when she heard the first shot and the first officer went down, she booked it. She was out of there. She was in a beautiful long flowing maxi dress with, I think, sandals. Those did not slow her down. She was gone. I'm going to assume, because the officers are kind of pinned down where they're at, that they did not radio for help. I think she literally just ran until she ran and got another car, and they took her to call this in. Because she is out of there, she is gone, we do not hear from her or see her for the rest of the episode. Props to you for getting out of danger, my my good woman. So then, of course, we get the HPD and 5-0 response to this. Because obviously, officers down, all hands on deck. They set up where the guy can still shoot at them, but he's not taking shots at them, but they're at a reasonably safe distance, they think. And they get suited up. They have two officers put on body armor. So they have the old school bulletproof vest. So this isn't Kevlar. This is just layered. I don't know what, but they're green and they're these huge vests. They kind of extend down past like towards the thigh. They're also wearing, they look like black knight masks. So they're, but they're green and they only cover the face. I'm guessing it's made of the same material as the vests to try to deflect any bullets from hitting them in the head. And they make their way over while the rest of the HPD lays down a suppressing fire. I don't want to know how many bullets. That That's a lot of gunfire. It was a lot of gunfire. They get them into a position so they can retrieve our wounded officers. They throw them in the car and start limping the car away because one tire's already been taken out from the shots. So they weren't able to escape. But they limp that car back, and as they're going, the cops have stopped firing. So Bill takes that out as an opportunity to shoot out one of the other tires, and the other cops start shooting them again, because now they have an idea of where that gunfire came from, and nearly hit him. This does not deter him in his motivations whatsoever, but now with the cops out of the way, one cop is dead, the other is being transported to the hospital. They have now established a good old-fashioned standoff. And Steve attempts to talk to him on the bullhorn. And it's great because that Bill just turns up his little handheld radio and then fires off a single shot to basically say, no, I'm not coming down. I don't want to wish to resolve this in a healthy way. They're now faced with trying to strategize how to get this guy out of there without anyone else getting hurt, including him. They're, they're actually making a concerted effort to try not to injure this man. The first thing they do is they have Danny get a chopper and do some aerial reconnaissance because he is on a hillside. There's no real good way to figure out what's going on. They at, he did, at one point, Steve asks for topographical maps. He calls them topographical maps. But however you pronounce it, he wants some maps of the hill so he can get an idea. But he also has Danny go up in the chopper and has him make sure that there are no hikers or Boy Scout troops or anybody else that's on that mountainside that might stumble into this situation. They don't want to present him with any more targets than what he already has. Very smart. So Danny makes a survey and comes back with the bad news. There's no real good way to approach this bunker that A, that, that somebody won't get shot and B, that they won't be able to close the net tight enough that he won't be able to slip through because it's on a hillside. It's surrounded by woods. It's an ideal location for a sniper. So they realize that once it gets dark, he'll be able to disappear. So they only have about three hours. So now we have a clock. So we have a standoff and we have a clock. 
because we have to have something. We have to have some tension because we've eliminated much of the targets. They've blocked off the road. HPD and 5 are set up in a location that's more difficult for him to shoot at. You need that added tension. We have a third layer of tension that comes in with Paul. Paul was a vacationing HPD officer who happened to find out that this was going on because he happened to be at the hospital at the same time that the wounded officer came in. So he's come down to help, and Steve makes it very clear what kind of help he is looking for. I figured you need a volunteer to go up and get that psych. Oh, now look, I know how you feel, but we're not lining up so he can cut us down. Just give me a little cover. Paul, listen to me. We need all the help we can get, but nobody's going to rush up that hill until we find out there's no other way of doing it. Now, if you can hold your cool, fine. Duke has a job for you. If not, get back in your car and stay out of my way. It should be no surprise that Paul cannot offer this help because we have to have somebody else basically take one for the team in the course of this. There has to be a little bit of action because so much of this episode takes place in one spot. So much of this episode is about the standoff and we do not have a typical bad guy who is up there demanding ransom or demanding money. He's not spouting ideologies. He's not making any kind of principled stand. There's no communication with him. In fact, the dialogue that we get at the very beginning with the shopkeeper is the only dialogue Bill has throughout the episode. He never once talks to 5 or HPD. We have no concrete insights into his motivation. We can only assume from what the psychiatrist tells us and what his wife tells us and the behavior of his mother what this is, what's going on, why he's doing any of this. We need to up the ante in some form. So we have kind of a, this wild card in Paul. He ends up getting tired of, of waiting throughout the standoff because he, from the very beginning, believes we should just rush in and go get him. And Steve is very reluctant to sacrifice his men in that fashion. But Paul basically steals a gun and goes up the hill. His gun jams. He is not in an ideal spot. Bill is taking shots at him. And it's already been established that Bill is a marksman. So... He's kind of toying with him almost. So Paul waits for him to reload so he can try to make it back down the hill. And he's talking shit the whole way. And Bill reloads rather quickly and ends up shooting Paul. Props to this whoever was doing stunts on the show. I don't think the actor who played Paul did his own stunts. Maybe he did. But whoever did that stunt, blessings be unto them. Because they rolled down this really gnarly looking steep slope. So Paul takes a hit, ends up going to the hospital, and we find out later that Paul dies, which is unfortunate, but you kind of had it coming for not listening to Steve and Duke. I believe this is the first time that we see Herman Wedemeyer as Duke. So yeah, Duke is rather disappointed by Paul's behavior as well, especially since Duke is kind of heading up the HPD side of things, and he's the one that set the marksman around like just before Paul decides to make his final charge. So obviously Paul's actions weigh heavily on Steve. Meanwhile, we have Chin Ho doing the investigative work. So Danny calls in the license plate of the supposedly abandoned car nearby. And it leads us to a DMV record for William T. Scheider, I think is what they keep saying his name is. They have a driver's license record and they have a thumbprint from a CDL application. And they start investigating that Chin gets his address, goes to his apartment, starts looking around, and that's when we find all of the marksman trophies, but they are made out to a man named William Shem. He also finds this picture of a beautiful older woman who is Jean Cooper. So devastatingly beautiful. 
and he finds the drawer full of guns. So through Chin's investigative work, they find out that William T. Shem was a marksman in the military. I believe they said the Marines. He was discharged. He ended up in a mental hospital after a sniping incident. And they find out he's married. So they get a hold of his psychiatrist first. And the psychiatrist does not have anything good to say. Bill's first sniping incident was he left in the middle of the night and put like 50 rounds into a gunboat. The gunboat was empty and he knew that. It's enough to earn him a discharge. They say something about the military doctor thought he might be faking just to get out of the military. The second incident was he took a gun and went and shot out the windows at, a wim- at the women's dim- dormitory at the college. He did it on a Sunday between semesters so nobody got hurt. That earned him six months in a psychiatric hospital. And that's where Dr. Fernando met him. I think that's our doctor's name. His diagnosis is that Bill's got some good old-fashioned Oedipal issues. A man that's got a passion so terrific to him that shooting and killing strangers is easier to live with. Usually it's a guilt over an incestuous drive toward a mother, sometimes a sister. That's the psychodynamics. Yeah, but what's the reality of it, doctor? What's the reality of it? How, how, how disturbed is he? How many more does he have to kill before he quits? He won't stop. Whatever was disturbing him has boiled over. He's not thinking he can't. He's not concerned with the consequences of his act. All he wants is out. Why didn't he commit suicide? That's exactly what he's doing. The doctor attempted to work with Bill on all of this, but then was forced to discharge him. Steve is incredibly frustrated by this, saying, how is this person able to be walking the streets when he's in this sort of mental state? And the doctor is completely honest with him. And he goes, this is not my call. This is what I have to work with because we are underfunded. This would be after the laws changed and inpatient treatment and facilities to house these people were basically gutted and everyone was in these kind of facilities were turned loose and put on the streets, and many of them ended up homeless. They gutted the social safety nets for programs like these to help these people, to keep these people safe, and to give them the the time that they needed to truly become stable and be able to really be released on the streets. Steve says something to the effect of, here's your tranquilizer, and out you go. Basically, that's how it kind of had to be. They had to get them well enough. They had to take what time they had to try to stabilize them and give them the coping skills they needed to be able to make it out in the real world before they had to move them out and bring in someone who was probably worse or whoever was next in line. So not only did this episode end up highlighting how easy it was to acquire firearms, it also highlighted the need for an overhaul of taking care of people with mental health issues. Both of these things are still issues today. So it's pretty clear that Bill is not quite healthy mentally. And it's reiterated when we finally meet Bill's wife, who is a very young Annette O'Toole. And Bill's wife seems very sweet. She seems a little naive, perhaps, but she she's a waitress and that's how she met Bill. She said that he was nice and polite to her and they ended up getting married. But when it comes to helping Bill, she won't do it. She said he would be mad that she was even there. And through some prodding from the psychiatrist, we find out that they were married 13 months prior to this, but they took their honeymoon to Maui 
and they got to the hotel. Bill sent her up to the room. He said he was going to make a phone call and get a pack of cigarettes and Bill never came back. So Bill basically abandoned her on their honeymoon. So they're technically married, but that was the last time she really interacted with him until I think the sniping incident at the women's dormitory. And then she talked to the psychiatrist about him and she says that he left to call his mother. As it turns out, Bill's mom lives on Maui. And Steve demands that she come out here to try to talk to him. They, they're trying to get Bill to come down without any incident. And the psychiatrist attempts to talk to him, knowing that it probably won't work out. He's so in the zone. This is his suicide. He doesn't intend to make it out alive. But he does try to talk to Bill down and Bill, to, Bill ends up taking a shot at him. So they try to get the mother to come out. And the mother does not want to come out. They have to force her. When she meets Steve, she's incredibly put out about this. This maniac could not possibly be my son. You have a son named William Thomas Shem. Yes, but he is not this idiot. He was hospitalized here on Oahu about a year ago after a sniping incident. He lives on Oahu, but he's never been in a hospital. Oh, not since he was seven years old. Mr. Shem, that sniper on top of the hill was hospitalized here sometime between February and May. Did you see your son during that time? He seldom comes to Maui, and I never come to this pest hall. Did you speak to him or get any mail from him during that time? Oh, my son writes me twice a week. Every week. Were any of the letters from the state hospital? He's not a lunatic. My son would never do anything like this. Is this your picture, Mr. Shen? You know it is. Where did you get it? In that sniper's apartment. So it's clear that Mrs. Shem has her own issues. You kind of wonder if Bill didn't inherit some of his mental illness from her because she is either in absolute total denial that her son could be capable of doing this or she's just the coldest bitch walking. It's Jean Cooper, so it could be either way. She clearly has issues with her son as much as her son has issues with her. She calls his wife a tramp, denies that he was ever in the hospital, denies that this is this madman is her son. She is a piece of work. She was also 5-0's last chance to try to get Bill down safely. Now they're going to have to go in and get him, and it ain't going to be pretty. But you know what is pretty? Yeah, you know it. It's this guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Bill is played by Michael Burns. He was Barnaby West on Wagon Train. Howie McCauley on It's a Man's World. And he was the blue boy in the famous LSD story episode of Dragnet 67. He also appeared in episodes of Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, McHale's Navy, Lassie, Bonanza, Tarzan, The Big Valley, Gentle Ben, Then Came Bronson, Gunsmoke, FBI, The Virginian, The Doris Day Show, The Partridge Family, Medical Center, The Mod Squad, Love American Style, The Streets of San Francisco, The Bionic Woman, and Police Woman. He appeared in the movies Thumb Tripping, That Cold Day in the Park, The Mad Room, Private Navy of Sergeant O'Farrell, 40 Guns to Apache Pass, The Raiders, and Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. And he was in the TV movies, Stranger on the Run, The Andersonville Trial, Gidget Gets Married, Brock's Last Case, and Young Love. And Shem was played by Gene Cooper. 
She is probably best known as Catherine Chancellor on The Young and the Restless. She was also Grace Douglas on Bracken's World. She appeared in episodes of The Twilight Zone, Thriller, Maverick, Surfside 6, Cheyenne, Rawhide, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Hawaiian Eye, The Untouchables, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Virginian, 77 Sunset Strip, Wagon Train with Michael Burns, Branded, Man from Uncle, Perry Mason, The Big Valley, Lancer, Cannon, Mannix, Longstreet, Ironside, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Emergency, L.A. Law with Son Corbin Burnson, Diagnosis Murder, Touched by an Angel, and The Nanny. She appeared in the movies Donna on Demand, Lethal Justice, Kansas City Bomber, There Was a Crooked Man, The Boston Strangler, Mosby's Marauders, Black Sioux, The Intruder, Unwed Mother, Plunder Road, and Rock All Night. And she appeared in the TV movies Sweet Hostage, The San Pedro Bums, Beyond Suspicion, and Gentle Ben 2, Black Gold. Dr. Fernando was played by William Krorkin. This is his first of two episodes, and those are his only credits. As I said, Duke was played by Herman Wedemeyer. He has one more episode as not Duke before he becomes Duke full-time. Joe Wantanabe was played by Jack Kinoshiro. This is his only credit. Tommy Iwa was played by Artie McAuliffe. This is his second of eight episodes. We also saw him in The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney. Paul was played by Nephi Hanneman. This is his third of 11 episodes. We also saw him in The Box and Run, Johnny, Run. Mr. Singh was played by Arthur He. This is his sixth of nine episodes. The Dispatcher was played by Winona Collins. This is her first of two episodes, and those are only her only credits. Ryder was played by Bo Vanden Ecker. This is his seventh of 21 episodes. And Bill's wife, Sue, was played by Annette O'Toole. She was Martha Kent on Smallville. Hope McRae on Virgin River. Eliza Schultz on The Punisher, Susan Emerson on Halt and Catch Fire, Dorothy Dottie Thurston on The Huntress, and Lisa Bridges on Nash Bridges. She also appeared in episodes of My Three Sons, Dan August, The Virginian, Gunsmoke, Mod Squad, The Partridge Family, Search, The Rookies, Dirty Sally, SWAT, Barnaby Jones, The 1995 Outer Limits, Boy Meets World, Law and Order, Private Practice, and The Good Doctor. She appeared in the movies Women Who Kill, Falling Up, Temptation, Imaginary Crimes, Superman 3, 48 Hours, Cat People, and Fooling Around. She was in the TV movies The Girl Most Likely 2, The Entertainer, Love for Rent, Stand By Your Man, Strong Medicine, Broken Vows, Kiss of a Killer, A Mother's Revenge, The Christmas Box, Final Descent, and Final Justice. And she was in the miniseries 11, 63, and It. And that is And I Want Some Candy and a Gun That Shoots. This is a surprisingly tense episode for being one that's not very action-packed in a sense because it is so much taking place in one location. It's a standoff and much of the investigation happens outside of that, and it's just Shinho doing it. We have a real wild kickoff with the initial shooting. We do have the cover fire. We have Paul's death. We have the ending. But in between that, the tension is pretty much based on how are they going to get this guy down before sunset and figuring out who this guy is and what his motives are. 
So it's a surprisingly engaging episode for something that could kind of be boring without a whole lot of movement. That tension that runs through is is pretty great. And that final push to resolve the situation before sundown, you kind of figured it's going to be inevitable. That's how it's going to end. But it's still a real great ending. And the very final scene is one that really kind of sticks with you. So this is definitely a good one. Give it a watch. Who's this tramp? I'm not a tramp. And that is episode 41 of Bookum Dano. Two really good episodes, I think. We have the first episode is probably a little more traditional Hawaii Five-O in that they're trying to solve a case, even if the case is kind of unconventional and we have some really engaging quote unquote bad guys that we're dealing with. Bad guys who are opposing each other as well as the police. And in the second episode, we're dealing with some really heavy subject matter of a mentally ill person engaging in violence, which is actually pretty rare. It's usually people who are mentally ill have the violence into them rather than other way around. But it, it's still an episode showing two major social failings and the catastrophic combination of those two things. So two really great episodes in their own ways. And you are also pretty great. Thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears and I apologize for my neighbor's dogs constantly giving their input to the latter half of this episode. I didn't ask for that. They didn't even watch the episode. But that is part of the charm of the show. I've got some real terrific ambiance. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Diano. You can also check me out at my blog, kikiwrites.com. Please check into my Patreon. I've got three great projects going on right now as of this recording. And I'm sure I will have more projects in the future if you happen to listen to this several years after the fact. And if you want to experience me promoting myself in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at Kiki Writes. So be wary of charming men in top hats. And if you're on vacation, don't go back into the office. Let somebody else handle those problems. Until next time. Aloha.